Philosopher Roger Scruton writes that beauty gives meaning to life. True beauty, he says, shines down on us like the voice of God. Plato, writing in Athens in the 4th century, said that uh, true beauty, beauty is the sign of another and higher order. And by beholding beauty with the eye of the mind, you will be able to nourish virtue and become the friend of God. One of the most fundamental things about human beings isn't merely our ability to grasp complex ideas and um, concepts and doctrines about life and faith, but our ability to experience awe and wonder, especially when we encounter beauty. Aristotle believed that at the core of being is the experience of wonder. He thought at the core of what it meant to be human is the ability to experience wonder. As children, wonder is all around us. Everything amazes us. The world, when you're a child, is an enchanted place. A child sees a dolphin at the zoo and wonders simply at the fact that it's a dolphin. They don't think, what can this dolphin do for me? There's no utilitarian motive behind the child's amazement with the dolphin. The dolphin amazes because, well, dolphins are beautiful. The wonder of the dolphin is the dolphin. In the same way, when we look at a beautiful flower, we don't ponder the flower's meaning. The meaning of the flower is the flower. The flower is beautiful, and that is enough. But as we age, we lose this sense of wonder, and boredom sets in. We can even find ourselves bored with that which should inspire us most and enchant us most, namely God. And this may have to do with the fact that we often think and talk about God only in utilitarian terms. I didn't say we only talk about God in utilitarian terms, but we often talk about God in utilitarian terms. What can I get from God? What can God do for me? How can I use God to get what I want? We see this all the time with prosperity preachers or you know, a lot of mainstream evangelical preaching, three keys to a successful marriage, Four Steps to Victorious Living, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Actually, that's a book by Dale Carnegie, but you get the idea. Instead of inspiring a sense of awe and wonder, God is a product we consume to get results. And we do this also at times when we share the gospel with others. We say things like, if you died today, where would you go? We figure, well, well, no one wants to go to hell, um, so serve Jesus because he'll save you and send you to heaven instead. And that's what I mean when I say that we think of God often in utilitarian terms. By the way, that is true. God, through Christ, does save us from hell and the punishment of our sins. But when we think of God solely in utilitarian terms, we think in terms of, what use is God to me? 
What use can I get out of God? What's he going to do for me? And this even affects how we experience preaching and hearing of the Bible. You know, we always want to know, uh, we always want to know the application of a verse. We want to be able to walk away with some nice little bite-sized application, right? Okay, here's how this applies to your circumstances, right? Which makes it really tough to preach certain passages of Scripture, right? Like the Lord will utterly destroy the remembrance of the Amalekites, you know? Here's three ways you can apply that in your life. You know, sometimes you just can't. You can't walk away from a lot of verses of Scripture with some little, nice, handy, bite-sized application to go, you know, have a good week at work this week. You know, it doesn't always work that way, and the Bible is not designed necessarily to always work that way. Sometimes it does, but sometimes it doesn't. We want to say that ultimately... We're edified by hearing the word of God preached for its own sake. There is something about scripture and something about hearing the stories and the lessons from the Bible that edify us in a way that transform and shape us into the form and character of the Son of God in a way that is not always visible, knowable, tangible. We're shaped when we hear the word of God. We're transformed by its preaching Because the word of God is about God. And knowing about God shapes us and changes us. The point of the scripture is the scripture. Something transformative about it. We don't really experience God in true relationship until we come to acknowledge him, not simply for what he's doing for us, but for who he is. Remember a minute ago I said we don't look at a flower and say, what's the meaning of the flower? The meaning of the flower is the flower. And in the same way, until we come to acknowledge and know God and love God and appreciate his beauty for being God, well, we don't fully come in contact with the relationship that God wants us to have with him. Imagine if we treated human relationships the same way we often treat God. What can they do for me, right? A marriage or a friendship, the relationship with a parent. What can this person do for me? Instead of loving that person because of who they are. Appreciating that person for who they are in themselves. A child loves their father, not for what he does, but simply because he's dad. Children love their fathers. They should. What if we prayed not just to make requests, there's nothing wrong with making requests, but to commune with God, to talk with God, and to hear from him just because God is beautiful to us. Timothy Keller famously said, religious people find God useful. Christians find God beautiful. I'll read that a second time. Religious people find God useful. Christians find God beautiful. Now, who God is, is never divorced from what he's done. So let me stop halfway and say I'm not making some type of dichotomy that these two things are opposed to each other. Because to know God is to know what God has done in his acts of redemption and creation in history. 
It's true. His creative and redemptive acts in history. We can contemplate the majesty of God for what he's done redemptively with his people. Even if I don't have, like Israel, an exodus moment. I can praise and worship him for creation, even if I don't see all of creation's wonders. The greatest philosopher of the Enlightenment, Immanuel Kant, argued that the experience of beauty comes when we put our interests to one side. When we look on things, not in order to use them for our purposes, or to explain how they work, or to satisfy a need or an appetite, but simply to absorb them and endorse what they are. Right? Consider the joy you might feel when you hold a friend's baby. You don't want to do anything to the baby. You don't want to put it to use to conduct a scientific experiment on it. You want simply to look at it and feel the surge of delight that comes when you focus all of your attention on the baby for its beauty and none at all on yourself. That's what Kant described as a disinterested attitude. And it's the attitude that underlies the experience of beauty. The feeling we get when listening to a beautiful piece of music like we just did, or gazing on a sublime landscape, or reading a poem that seems to contain the essence of the very thing it describes. What I want us to see is that to truly know God, we must learn to wonder at who and what he is in himself. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He dwells in ineffable light, which means too great to, or extreme to be expressed or described in words. Ineffable. He dwells in ineffable light. Isaiah the prophet said, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Isaiah's vision of the temple. John the Apostle wrote in Revelation, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven. Two visions of God's throne here. One in Isaiah, one in Revelation. A throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one that sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby and rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounded the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. And also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And the angels in heaven, day and night, never stopped crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now those are awesome images that inspire us. They inspire wonder in us. Description of God that 
no mortal could ever correspond to. But what's most beautiful is that he condescended to us and did take on mortal flesh, emptying himself of heaven's privileges, and he appears, which is where we get the word epiphany, he appears to us in the face of a child born to Mediterranean peasants. That is truly wondrous. That is amazing. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. For great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested, epiphanied, in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. 1 Timothy 3.15 For the grace of God has appeared, epiphanied, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Titus 2.11 By looking at God, particularly as he is revealed in Christ, we glimpse the light of eternity. When we meditate on the fact that in Jesus, the radiance and the brilliance of God shines clearer than anywhere else. And when we do that, we're coming in contact with beauty that is infinite. Philippians 2 and 6 says, Though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be exploited. The Son of God existing in eternity past along with the Father and the Spirit, three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, sharing in one divine essence, the triune God as we call it, the second person of the Trinity who had all of the privileges and rights to deity being in the form of God came to earth in a human body. Hebrews 10 and 5 says, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. Though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be exploited. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Irenaeus, Bishop of Lyon, said, God became what we are in order to make us like what he is in himself. Epiphany causes us to ponder and meditate on the indescribable beauty of the fact that God is not only transcendent, but he's imminent. He's with us. He loves us. He cares for us. And he wanted to save us. That this world wasn't so far gone that he couldn't be associated with it, but he entered not only into this world, but he entered into humanity. 
that is wonderful. That is amazing. Clement of Alexandria in the second century wrote, the word of God became a man so that you might learn from a man how to become like God. The incarnation of the Son of God affirms the world in all of its beauty and brokenness, in all of its dignity and depravity. And that's beautiful. We're better people for reading good books. I remember my first year in seminary, a friend who was off for the winter decided not to take Jan term, and he read um, Crime and Punishment. Is that Tolstoy or Dostoevsky? Someone knows? This is Tolstoy? So he read Crime and Punishment, and it's a big book. And, but it's fiction, and it's not theology, you know? And you don't have to write papers. And he kind of blew through it, you remember. He blew through it. I said, how'd you like it? He said, you know, it was a tough read, but I'm a better person for it. When we read good books, when we gaze over the edge of the Grand Canyon, or stare at a masterpiece, each with its own contribution to beauty, we're changed by it, transformed in some small way, just for the experience alone. When we look at Monet's famous painting, The Sunrise, we're not experienced just the, we don't experience just the painting, but we learn something about the artist himself. When we listen to Bach's prelude to cello number one, which is what we listened at the beginning of the sermon, we aren't just hearing Bach, we're coming in contact with the composer himself. And we're looking at the incarnation and we see the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ, we're coming in contact with and experiencing the very God who made us and all things. And that is beautiful. Let's pray. God, now our Savior, our Redeemer, our Fortress, our strong tower, name that is above every name. Lord, we honor you and we thank you for the grace and privilege of knowing you in your son Jesus. It is on his account that we are accepted. It is on his account that we are forgiven. You count us as children of God, your holy ones no longer under the curse and under the wrath, but privileged to partake of your grace and love. We're forgiven. We're your children, all on account of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the beauty that is your Son, the wonder and the enchantment of the gospel that you loved us so much that you sent your only begotten Son, to die for us, that we may know him and have eternal life. We pray these things in his name. Amen.